You're listening to teaching from Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. Good morning, Castle Hills. Saludos en el nombre de Jesucristo. Uh, this feels like home uh, as Ronnie and I uh, share in uh, our friendship. Uh, we often call each other, and our church in Highland Park uh, faces lots of the challenges that your church faces here, shares in lots of the joys, and so it really feels like home to be with you. I had a great time visiting uh, with Jesus earlier this morning, and uh, hearing what is happening there, and so it's just a blessing to be here. I'm here with my wife, Beth, and my two sons, Cole and Levi, and my two daughters, Sharabi and Hope, so we're, we're thankful to be here. Also, thank you on behalf of Black Box International. I'm on the board of trustees for Black Box, which helps boys who are rescued out of trafficking, and I know that your church partners with Black Box, and so... Uh, I talked to the, the Black Box leadership this week, and they said, please, please tell Castle Hills how important they are to our ministry, and thank you, thank you, thank you. And so on behalf of them, uh, thank you as well. Um, and Ronnie mentioned the book that I wrote that some of this is kind of shaped around, which God directed all of that, and I've just tried to be a good steward of, of those ideas. We will have some of those for sale, and all of the proceeds go towards Black Box of anything sold today. So um, just as a way to say thank you for your partnership there. And so... Um, it's good to be with you. There's a guy named Isaac Watts in the 1700s who's one of the great hymn writers of all time. He wrote songs such as Joy to the World and When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, kind of these classic hymns that we still sing today. But when he wrote those songs, not everybody was happy with it. See, at the time, the early churches would sing songs that were right out of the Psalms. And the church was comfortable with that. And then here was this guy introducing this newfangled music called hymns. And the church wasn't so sure about that. And some people thought, I don't think we should sing these hymns. They're too new and contemporary and crazy for us. And so the church was having this fight about it. And they decided that they would do psalms, sing the psalms first. And then there would be the sermon. And then they could do the hymns at the end of the service. Well, the people who did not like the hymns actually got up and walked out of the church after the sermon so they didn't have to sing the hymns. And in order to retaliate, um, Isaac Watts actually wrote the song, We're Marching to Zion. You may have heard that song. And in the second stanza, he took a shot at the people who left. In that second stanza, it says, Let those who refuse to sing who never knew our God. Ooh. And... I wish that was the only time we had had this embarrassing, shameful fight in church history, right? But it's not. And I think Jesus knew that we would have this struggle of getting along and being one, as that song said, as the early, as the church. It's been happening for a long time. And if you were just to read through John 17, you would see that Jesus praying, God, just help them be one. As we are one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let the church reflect that unity to the world who is watching. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and be turning to Acts chapter 18. That will be our scripture from this morning, where we want to look at this question of how can, be, how can we be one? And if you've been here for the, the first couple of weeks of the series, 
um, that's been shared with you. We've talked about how this dancing in no man's land, this idea is there's this place between, but we often have fights because we choose one extreme at the exclusion of the other. For instance, we say, I'm committed to truth, but I don't care anything about peace with other people. And when churches do that, they beat up people, they become dogmatic, and they actually try to teach the message of Christ without teaching like Jesus taught. But there's other churches who have said, we just need to be at peace with people, and we don't really care about the truth. And they end up with a watered-down gospel that actually destroys people instead of brings them to life. And God invites us to walk in this land between the two bunkers, this place in between uh, where in the early World War, we called it no man's land because nobody wanted to be there. You felt like you got shot from both sides. And as a church family, I bet you there's times where you feel shot from both sides because you are following where God has you. And it's a difficult place to be. And so what we want to ask this morning is, How can you as a church family passionately care about truth, hang on to your conviction for God's truth, and at the very same time, hang on to God's command to love one another, to be one? How can you do that? How can you be in this land between where you care about doctrinal purity and what you believe, and you also care about how you treat one another? There is a way to do that, but it is difficult. This church, like our church, was uh, formed out of the restoration movement that occurred in the 1800s as these churches began forming. And one of the mantras of the day was, in essentials, unity. So in the big things like, uh, who is Jesus? And did he really rise from the dead? In those, unity. We're all the same. We all believe that. In non-essentials, liberty. So in like... At what point do we take communion in the service? Do we sing psalms or hymns or new songs or whatever? In those non-essentials, there's liberty, okay? We're going to not make a big fuss about those things. But in all things, charity. In all things, love. And that's a mantra that should still drive the churches today. And so we come to Acts chapter 18. There's this guy named Apollos, and he was an eloquent, brilliant uh, a lecturer, uh, he knew of Christianity. Um, but as you can imagine, being involved in the first church, uh, we have Jesus and the early church forming, and then you have different people going different directions, telling people about the gospel. But you would have got kind of bits and pieces of it, and probably not the whole thing all at once. And so Apollos was this brilliant guy, but he had not heard the full message of the gospel. Specifically, he had not understood the baptism of Jesus. He had understood this kind of baptism of repentance, but not what Peter had talked about, what we read about in Acts 2, when Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Apollos didn't know about that. And so Apollos was teaching people about Christianity without that part. And his heart was in the right place. He was trying to teach people And trying to help people accept Christianity, but he didn't understand it all. And so there's these two other people named Priscilla and Aquila, a a wife and husband duo, who were watching what Apollos was doing. And they understood the the depth of the gospel, and they understood about baptism. and, And they could have done several things. They could have seen Apollos 
not teaching correctly, and they could have just gotten on Twitter or Facebook and said, like, man, Apollos is a false teacher, and you should run away from his church, get away from him. Um, and they could have just, you know, made a big social media mess out of it, like we kind of do with everything today. Or they could, you know, gone to the newspapers. Or they could have stood up in the middle of one of his lectures and said, Apollos is a false teacher, don't follow him. Or they could have just ignored him and, like, had nothing to do with him and started their own church. Or they could have just let it go and decided that it didn't matter that he didn't know the full gospel. They could have done lots of things that would have put them in one bunker or the other, but what they do actually paves the way and shows us what we are to do when something like that happens. So I want to read from Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately though he only knew about the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So what do you do when someone disagrees with you about the scripture? Discipleship. Discipleship. When you disagree with someone about scripture, the, you don't just choose silence. You don't mistreat them. You don't attack them. It's discipleship. You try as best you can to introduce them to the truth in a loving way. So I want to mention three ways that Priscilla and Aquila discipled that were keys to discipleship. And by the way, when we talk about discipleship, we talk about that a lot at Highland Park. We define it this way. Discipleship is moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life which means it's a lifelong endeavor. The more we can help people believe in Jesus, that we believe that Jesus is good and true and right about everything in life, marriage and family and finances and stewardship, certainly salvation and all of those things. And so they came along to disciple Apollos, to, to help him understand three big things. Number one, discipleship is relational. I often tell people at our... Uh, um, when people ask me about the church, I say, you know, ministry is awesome, and it would be incredible if it wasn't for all the people. <clears throat> That's an old preacher joke. And the truth is that ministry is often hard because of we preacher people, right? Um, we're the ones who are difficult. Ministry is messy. Volunteering is messy. Discipleship is difficult because people are difficult, and I'm exhibit A in that. It's difficult to enter other people's lives and their messes and their brokenness, but that's exactly what Jesus did when he came to earth, and it's exactly what God calls us to do. And if you care about unity and you care about the truth of Scripture, you care about relationships and friendships, and you make friends uh, with people who are difficult. I love that Priscilla and Aquila, instead of having a public debate with Apollos or writing a nasty letter, or splitting off and doing a new church. What did they do? They said, hey, come over for some dinner. Come to our home. Let's have tea and dessert. Come on. Oh, it's relationship. It's inviting. 
I, I doubt Apollos went over like all defensive and on edge and ready to fight back. He's like, hey, they're having me over for dinner. They care about me. It's hospitality. You can have those conversations in the living room that are really difficult to have in a debate format. It's relational. And so are you willing to embrace relationship with people, even the messy ones, even the broken ones, especially them, actually? Secondly, discipleship is not only relational, but it's instructional. It wasn't enough just to say, hey, Apollos, come over, have dinner with us. That was the first part. But then I imagine there was a part in the evening where, you know, they're, they're kind of finishing up dessert. And they say, hey, Apollos, we want to talk to you about something tonight. We love you and we care for you, but we want to talk to you and actually teach you some stuff that we think you might have missed about the baptism of Jesus. And apparently Apollos, in wisdom and humility, just listens. Ah, oh, for more people to be like that, Right? But Priscilla and Aquila did everything that they could to, to give him that opportunity because discipleship has to be instructional as well. Maybe not, that's, that may not be the very first thing, but it's going to come. We want to invest in people's lives and then instruct them and say, hey, I'm, I'm concerned about this, or can I teach you about this, or I, I, can I help you in your marriage a little bit? God has some stuff to say about that. And so it's instructional. The third thing, discipleship is intentional. You have to do it on purpose. Fights happen on accident, right? If you put kids in a room with zero instruction, zero guidance, they're going to end up in some fights, right? That's what naturally happens in the course of human history. But discipleship is intentional. You have to get in there. Uh, oftentimes when the kids have been and with my wife at the store and, and they're shopping, she'll, she'll be like... Everybody walk with a purpose. And she starts walking. She's like, come on, keep up with me. We got stuff to do. We got places to go. And when we discipleship people, it needs to be with a little bit of a purpose, right? This, this is relational. It's instructional. But, man, it is intentional that we want you to believe in God and walk with him in every area of your life. And that last verse of Acts 18 says, Apollos was a great help to the believers and vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. It worked. Like discipleship works. It's a beautiful thing that they did. See, they could have alienated Apollos. They could have run him out. They could have said, you can't ever speak again or, or we're going to ignore you. They could have knocked his legs out from under him. And instead, they discipled him. And what happened? They released this man of God unto the world. And he made a difference helping people, even the academic types uh, and, and the people who were ready to, elect, to debate and have these philosophical arguments. Apollos was the perfect guy for that. And that's why we need to disciple people because other people have gifts and spheres of influence that are different than ours. So we disciple people and we release them out to go. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, you can maybe even say begs the church, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Make every effort, church, every effort, not a little effort, but every single stinking last ditch effort. Try it one more time. Fight for unity, church. 
One of the things I love about Castle Hills is you're in a community that's changed. You're in a community that's felt some turbulence. You're in a community that has different cultures and ethnicities represented, that has different generations represented. And I know from experience it's harder to do church that way. What would be easier is to only make your church for one certain little group of people and just do everything just for them. And then your church will look like you and talk like you and understand you and everything will be kind of the same. That's an easier way to do church. That is not the way that God tells us to do church. You're doing it. And you may not have all the headlines on your church, but what you are doing is so significant in the kingdom of God. From the bottom of my heart, I say, keep doing this. Keep doing this what is difficult. Keep, keep bridging those cultural differences that take a little bit of work. Keep bridging those generational differences that are opposite of what our culture tells us will work. You do what God has called us to do, to make every effort, because our world cannot figure out how to do unity. But it's something supernatural that the Holy Spirit will do in us as we commit to bringing people together and loving one another. And so I want to encourage you in that. When I first moved to Tulsa, there was a quiet, uh, older uh, man of God named Chuck Thomas who poured a lot into me and cared for me, prayed for me and my family every morning. And um, when Chuck got sick before he had passed away, I went to visit him one day and, it, and he began telling me a story I'd never heard before. And I couldn't believe I'd never heard it before. And I had him tell it to me a second time just so I could write it down. And the story is that when Chuck was in Bible college, a young guy, uh, he was married to his wife, Anita, and they were going to school. And a, a little small country church in Oklahoma was looking for someone to come preach on the weekends because they didn't have a, a preacher at that time. And Chuck said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. So he and Anita went there for that first Sunday, and he preached a sermon. It went okay. A family said, come have lunch with us, and they did. Uh, but they had noticed something weird. And Chuck at lunch said, hey, I noticed at the church, it seemed like there was like two churches there together. It seemed like the left side was opposite from the right side. And there was like two communion tables, and there were elders that prayed over each one. And I noticed that people didn't really talk to each other from the left side and the right side. What's up with that? And the lady there at lunch said, you know, I don't know, but I know what you're saying is true. I just can't remember what started it. So she got on the phone and called her grandma and said, Grandma, tell me that story again. Why is it that we hate each other? <laughs> and her grandma began telling her a true story that Chuck thought was a joke for a minute, but turns out it's true. That years ago, this is true, they had a fight over the carpet. They wanted to put in more in new carpet, and, one, and some people wanted red, and some people wanted blue. And it was so divisive that they actually put half red and half blue. And so you had the red church people and the blue church people that would come, and it got to where they just didn't even talk to each other. They had their own elders. They had their own communion tables and trays, and it was just like two churches in one. And Chuck is just sitting there listening to this as a college kid being like, I can't believe this. And so the next Sunday, he preaches from the Lord's Prayer, specifically, Father, forgive us as we forgive one another. And that's his whole sermon, forgiveness. Preaches it, gets in the car, heads home, comes back the next Sunday. He and Anita gets up there, opens up his Bible, preaches from the Lord's Prayer, specifically, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive one another. Similar sermon. It's all about forgiveness. 
drives home, goes to college for the week, comes back on Sunday. Sermon number three, Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive one another. So after the third sermon, the elders say, hey, Chuck, we need to have a meeting. Hey, we like you. You're a nice young guy. You're a good preacher. But we notice your sermons are all pretty much the same. And Chuck, who is a humble and quiet man, in that moment, this young kid says to the elders, I'll quit preaching that sermon when you all learn to forgive each other. Gets in the car, heads home. They don't fire him, which he thought was going to happen. They invite him back for a fourth, and he comes back for sermon number four, and he's got his sermon ready to go, and you can guess what it is. But before he can get up there during the communion time, one of the guys over here puts down the trays and said, stop everything for a second. I can't do this anymore. And he walked across the carpet and put out his hand and said, would you forgive me? And the elder over here dropped his communion trays down and just hugged him and said, would you forgive me? And then all the, uh, the elders started doing this, and then chaos broke out, and the whole church started doing this, and everything was interrupted for 20 or 30 minutes as people said, would you forgive me? And they cried, and they hugged, and they loved one another. And Chuck was like, well, I don't have time to preach, but I don't need to preach a sermon today anyway. You are, have already lived it. And for the first time in decades, that church actually left in peace, in unity. Chuck's telling me this story from his hospital bed. He's got this little glimmer in his eye, and he, and he said, can you believe what a brash kid I was? <laughs> and I said, Chuck, I think you were speaking the, word, the, the words of the Lord there. I think God used you in a mighty way to save that church, to disciple that church. And sometimes in church life, we make mountains out of molehills. But God is calling us to really think about with discernment what things are big deals and what things aren't big deals. Forgiveness is a big deal. You read through the scripture, it's a big, big deal. Central, we should, we should die for that one. The color of the carpet, eh. Nobody needs to fight over that one. Nobody needs to die over that one. As we look through scripture, we see people who would fight for unity and for peace with others, and they would go along with things up to a point where they'd have to say, I want to be at peace with you and I love you, but I can't be with you right now. When the kings of Babylon dripped with ungodliness, Daniel still served them. But when King Darius outlawed prayer to God, Daniel's disobedience landed him in a lion's den and Daniel had found his hill to die on. Joseph skillfully served the pagan Potiphar in Egypt and surely it had to trouble his conscience to serve this uh, Pharaoh for so long. And yet he did it as best he could, keeping peace with Pharaoh. But when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, Joseph said, no. The jealous wife concocted a story and threw him into prison. Joseph had found his hill to die on. Esther won a beauty contest and became, became the queen of Persia. And marrying the unsavory Xerxes must have tested her. And yet she chose to try to be at peace with the king and the Persians. But when she found out about a plot to kill all the Jews, she risked her life because she found her hill to die on. Paul loved his Jewish brothers and pleaded with them to turn to Jesus. But when the Jewish leaders of cities threatened to beat and jail and even stone him for preaching Christ's love for all people, Paul says, hey, if I die, it's okay. I found my hill to die on. 
And when you grow weary of trying to determine what hills are worth your death, remember Jesus Christ in Colossians 1 who said that your sins, our sins, have led us astray. They've taken us away. We've chosen to be an enemy of Christ. We made that choice to be an enemy with Christ, and Christ came towards us and said, no, 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 I'll do anything for you. See, when he was thinking about you, that's where Jesus found his hill to die on. And he died on a hill so that you could be saved And so the church could be one, and you could represent Jesus to San Antonio and to the world beyond. It only took a couple generations for mankind to start killing one another. You know, Cain and Abel, second generation, Cain kills his brother. But what was shattered in the garden will one day be restored in a city. And Revelation says... After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, tongue, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And it is in this diverse, loud, and spectacular worship service that we see the love and the unity of God's people in all of their diversity. And God has called us to the same. And this morning, we say, be one, church. Be one. Be one for this community. Be one for one another. Be one to be a representation of God's unity. Let's pray. God, we, we ask you to help us be one. As the church here in San Antonio, as the church all over the world, the church in Tulsa and beyond, help us to be one so that we can demonstrate what you have done. We can care for one another and be an example to a lost world that doesn't know how to do unity, that doesn't know how to get along. And they'll see something supernatural in the church that will draw them to your love and to your arms. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.